Well, love is such a, a powerful force in this world, isn't it? Love drives people to do all sorts of things that we would probably never even consider doing otherwise, right? Because of love, uh, there are people who completely change the direction of their lives. They, they change their career path. They move away from dozens of family and friends so that they can be with just one person because of love. Love is the reason people throughout history have thrown caution to the wind and taken tremendous risks to their own safety and security to help the ones they love. I can't help but think of the great uh, theologian and German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer who successfully escaped Nazi Germany to America only to willingly choose to return and ultimately face martyrdom all because of his love for God and his countrymen. And of course, Love has driven many throughout human history to lay down their own lives for others, as we've seen in the video, a love for country and a love for their fellow man. And so we honor them this morning. Certainly, we have no greater example of the power of love and how it is manifested in one's life than, of course, the love that Jesus Christ has for us. It's a love that drove him to intercede in prayer for the very people who were torturing and mocking and killing him while they were doing it. He prayed for them because of his love. It's the perfect love that we talked about two weeks ago in chapter 44 of the story in Genesis that we're working our way through. Uh, these two chapters, 44 from last time I was with you and 45, which we're covering today, these two chapters really run together as one fluid continuation of the same conversation between Joseph and his brothers. And so where uh, chapter 44 helped us to define perfect love, chapter 45 really shows us what that perfect love looks like in action as Joseph, who has completely duped his brothers numerous times now in an elaborate scheme to test them and to learn more about his family, he finally confronts his brothers with the reality that he is not only the vizier, the, the second in command of all of Egypt, but he also happens to be their little brother whom they tossed into an empty cistern and ultimately sold off into slavery in Egypt out of their own hatred toward him about 22 years earlier. There's so much to this story, by the way, that if you haven't been here and if you're interested, you can go to our uh, website or YouTube channel and watch all of the sermons leading up to this one. It truly is an epic story about God's sovereign hand at work in the lives of his people, which is not only intensely interesting in its own right, but it is profoundly relevant and applicable to all of us today because the same God who is at work in the lives of the characters in this story, that same God is working in the same ways in all of our lives today, whether we realize it or not. So through all of the, the twists and turns, the, the hardships and heartaches, the, the long days of waiting and wondering why we may be going through what we're going through, even through broken relationships and what seem to be the most irreconcilable circumstances, do you know that God is always, always, always working on our behalf? He uses each situation and every hurt and even those times of desperation to our ultimate good. Uh, there's a very well-known and often quoted verse of Scripture 
where the Apostle Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28, you've heard it. Notice Paul doesn't say, for those who love God, all pleasant things work together for good. He doesn't say, for those who love God, all healthy things work together for good. He doesn't say, for those who love God, all successful things work together for good. No, Paul says, for those who love God, all things work together for good. In other words, for those who love God, meaning his people, he's working all aspects of our lives, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He's working all of it together, ultimately for our good, which interestingly enough, is exactly what we find happening in this story about Joseph and his family. Everything that Joseph saw as a deficit in his life, God saw as an asset because those heartaches and broken relationships and seemingly irreconcilable circumstances in Joseph's life were the very means through which God brought healing and restoration and reconciliation in Joseph's life to the point that the joy and the blessing and the relationships that he enjoyed in the latter part of his life were infinitely greater than anything he could have ever imagined in the earlier part of his life. But to get there, to get to the place where Joseph was able to realize the fullness of all that God had for him, to get there, he had to travel through all of the things that God had planned for him, right? Not just all of the pleasant things or the healthy things or the successful things, you see. There are no shortcuts to becoming what God created us to be. We have to travel through all of the things that in the end get us where we're supposed to be. We, we, we can't skip a step or two or ten and expect to end up in the same place that we would if we went through all of the things that he intends for us to go through. So think about it this way. To bake a delicious cake a wonderfully sweet and beautifully decorated cake, you have to include all of the ingredients required to end up with that kind of cake, right? And yet some of the individual parts of that cake by themselves are not so sweet or beautiful at all, right? No, no one would enjoy eating a bowl of raw flour by itself. But you have to have flour to create the masterpiece of a cake. Raw eggs are not particularly pleasant to look at or consume, but you need them for that cake to turn out the way that it's supposed to, okay? There are individual ingredients in making a wonderful cake that are by themselves bitter, even harsh. But when combined with all of the other things in that recipe, the end result is far better than what you started with, but you can't leave out the unpleasant parts and expect to end up with the same result. Okay, God is constantly working all things together for good in your life because he knows all of the things that must be combined in your life, that great recipe that is your life, in order to create the masterpiece that your life is intended to be. And it's all because of his perfect love for us that he allows us to go through all of it, even the hard parts because those difficult parts are just as necessary as all of the other parts 
to complete the process so that what we often view as deficits in our lives, do you know that God actually sees as assets? By the way, just in case you're wondering, this is a work in progress, which is only fully realized at the end of this age. So we never completely arrive in this life. We just get a little closer each day until he calls us home and he completes the masterpiece that is you. A.W. Tozer writes, Life is a short and fevered rehearsal for a concert we cannot stay to give. Just when we appear to have attained some proficiency, we are forced to lay our instruments down. There is simply not enough time to think, to become, to perform what the constitution of our natures indicates we are capable of. Okay, if we're to become all that we can become in this life, then we have to be willing to travel through all that he has placed before us, the good, the bad, and the ugly, understanding all the while that all of the things we are going through are actually his perfect love and action in our lives, working all those things together, ultimately for our good. And nowhere is this more evident in Scripture than in this part of the story today as we continue our sermon series looking at the life and times of Joseph. So let's pick the story up right where we left off two weeks ago at Genesis chapter 45, which is uh, immediately on the heels of Judah offering his own life to Joseph as a sacrifice for sparing Benjamin's life. And they're having a conversation about that. And it is in that very moment that Joseph can no longer continue his charade as his heart breaks over the intensity of his own love and compassion that he feels for his brothers. The same brothers who rejected him two decades before. And so now in this part of the story, we find this powerful picture of Jesus Christ's own perfect love for us, working all things together for our good, represented in this story of Joseph and his brothers. It's a great parallel. And so just for the sake of context, let's go back actually and read the last three verses of chapter 44. So this is Judah speaking to Joseph, who's threatening to keep Benjamin as a slave. And so Judah offers his own life in place of Benjamin. So chapter 44, we'll read verse 32 to the end of the chapter. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers, for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This was, this was the turning point, okay? This was the watershed moment for Joseph when he could no longer contain his love for his brothers. And in that moment, he finally reveals his true identity to them. Let's read chapter 45, the first three verses. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, making everyone go out from him, so no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. I bet they were. <laughs> so Joseph has already broken down emotionally 
twice before over his brothers back in chapters 42 and then again in 43. But in each of those instances, he left the room and he wept privately. So this is the first time he expresses this deep emotion for them in front of them and it initiates the great revelation of his true identity which is probably even more shocking than it seems at a casual reading because when verse 1 says that Joseph made himself known to his brothers right after expelling everyone else from the room, that is most likely a reference to Joseph actually showing his brothers that he was circumcised. Do you know that? First of all, Jewish tradition tells us as much. Secondly, that is the only way that Joseph could have definitively proven to his brothers that he was, in fact, a Hebrew. Thirdly, it would explain why he made everyone else leave the room. We, we certainly see later on in this chapter that Joseph wasn't hiding from the Egyptians the fact that these were his brothers. So he didn't make everyone leave uh, so that his relationship to his brothers could remain a secret. And finally, we actually have collections of ancient rabbinical writings called the Midrash from as early as uh, the second century AD, including one called the Bereshith Rabbah, which although not biblical scripture, it does record that Joseph revealed his circumcision here to his brothers, proving that he was a member of God's chosen people and of course a participant in the Abrahamic covenant. So there's certainly compelling evidence, if not conclusive evidence here, that Joseph clears the room and in the most intimate sense he reveals his true identity to his brothers and, and their response in that moment is shock and awe. In fact, verse 3 says his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. And that word dismayed, there's the Hebrew word bahel which is used throughout scripture to describe a state of terror. And so right from the beginning of the chapter, we begin to see some powerfully moving scenes in this story between Joseph and his family, which also vividly represent the love that Jesus Christ has expressed to his people, to his family. The fact that Joseph was revealing his true identity at the same time he was expressing such great love for these men who had abused and rejected him so horribly. It's a beautiful foreshadowing of the revelation of the Christ and his intimate expression of perfect love for mankind who had abused and rejected him so horribly as well. And interestingly enough, there are revelations of Jesus Christ, as I'm sure you know, to men and women in Scripture, starting all the way back from Genesis 16 all the way through to the book of Revelation. And in many of those instances, when Jesus is revealed before men, the response is what? It's shock and awe. They tremble in a state of terror, just as Joseph's brothers did here. And then as we continue reading, you can begin to see how Joseph is actually working all of this, everything that he and his brothers and his father have been through, he's now working it all together for their good. Let's keep reading. Chapter 45, verses 4 through 15. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. 
And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. And there I will provide for you for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, of all that you've seen. Hurry, bring my father down here. And then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all the brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. So Joseph reassures them that it is in fact him. And then verses five through nine, he makes the point four separate times that all of this has happened. What has happened here is not actually their doing at all, but God's, which has all been done, by the way, he says, for their good. And then Joseph begins to explain to them specifically what that good work in their lives will look like in the coming days. He says, you shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me. Your children, your children's children, your flocks, your herds, all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. Now Goshen uh, which is a Semitic name of an area of land in the, the northeastern uh, region of the Nile Delta. It was perfectly suited for herdsmen and agriculture. It was a place of rich soil, and best of all, it was in close proximity to Joseph so that he could be with his family often. And interestingly, we have ancient Egyptian texts that tell of Pharaoh Merneptah in about 1220 B.C., allowing the Bedouin tribes of Edom, or Edomites, to live in Goshen, and I quote, to keep themselves and their flocks alive in the territory of the king. So Goshen was prime real estate, and Joseph is explaining to his brothers who nearly had him killed years before, which led to his abduction, which led to his slavery, which led to his imprisonment. He's now explaining to these same brothers that God has actually made all of this happen so that their family could end up in Goshen, a wonderful place, perfectly suited for their needs, for their herds, where they could be protected and provided for away from the temptations of Canaan, which we talked about two weeks ago, and the worldwide famine that was still going on. And then verse 12, he says, and now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. In other words, Joseph for the first time is now speaking to them in Hebrew right? He made everyone else leave the room. So there's no longer an interpreter in the room. And in their own language, Joseph pours out his heart to them and tells them of all the good that God is doing on their behalf. And it's, it's, not, just, it's not just that Joseph recognizes the sovereignty of God here in their circumstances so that he's compelled to reveal himself to them and tell them this good news about their future. But it's actually born out of a genuine and deep love and a great desire for their well-being. 
which is evident in the first thing that he says to them right after revealing his true identity in verse 4. What does Joseph say to them? He says, come near to me, please. This is far more than an exchange of information. You see, he not only wants to be a blessing to his brothers, but he wants to be close to them, even after all that they've done to him. And now here they stand before their brother, racked with shame for what they've done. And he says, please, come near. This entire interaction is so overwhelmingly symbolic of the interaction of Jesus with us before we come to know him. In that moment when he reveals himself to sinners, shameful men and women who have rejected him. You know, James, the brother of Jesus, said it this way, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James 4.8. You see, in all our shame, he bids us come near. It's one of the ways that he works all things for our good. Even our shameful things, God uses ultimately to draw us toward him. And listen, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? When we feel shame for something we've done towards someone else, the last place that we want to be is in the presence of that person because we're ashamed. Our nature is to run away and hide, to put distance between ourselves and that person. It's why people have trouble making eye contact with you when you confront them for something they've done wrong because everything in us, When we are full of shame, everything in us screams separation. That is until that moment when that person that we're ashamed to be around says to us, please, come near. I want to be close to you. I forgive you because I love you. Then what happens? The exact opposite reaction We run into the arms who wants to be close to us, even in our shame. I can't tell you how many times I've confronted one of my own kids when they were little about something they were doing wrong. And and what did they do? They immediately run away and bury their head in a pillow or turn away from me and put their head down because of the shame they feel for what they've done. And yet the moment I say, hey, daddy loves you. Come here. They come running into my arms and press into me as I hold them. Okay, look, guys, the last thing that we should do when we behave shamefully is pull away from God. But that's exactly what people do, isn't it? We stop praying. We stop reading his word. We pull back from the church. We pull back from our church family because we feel shameful. But the apostle Paul made it so abundantly clear. He said, there is therefore now no condemnation, none for those who are in Christ Jesus. The entire time we're trying to put distance between ourselves and God when we're full of shame, he's simply saying to us the entire time, come near to me, please, come here. You see, he works all things together for our good, even our shame, which we see as a deficit But God uses it as an asset. He uses our shame to draw us closer to him. 
closer than we've ever been before. So don't run away from God. Don't back away from church. Don't avoid your Christian friends when you've messed up or done something shameful. No, that's when you run toward God. That's when you run to the church because he is ready to embrace you and to bring you even closer through that shame, closer to him and closer to his people probably than you've ever been before. That's what was happening here with Joseph and his brothers as they literally embrace one another and weep. Tears of joy, closer than they have ever been since Joseph was born. And it all came through their shame. Let's keep reading. Verses 16 through 20. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours." This is an astonishing turn of events as these brothers in danger of losing their entire families to starvation, in danger of being imprisoned for life by their brother, which he had every right to do, in danger of losing their father if they came back just one more time without another brother. They couldn't be in a more precarious position with everything to lose. And yet now their brother and Pharaoh himself lavishes on them the very best of all that the land has to offer to the point that Pharaoh even tells them not to bother packing their own belongings in Canaan for the journey back to Egypt because they won't need any of it when they make it back there because everything that is being prepared for them. And again, it's the very picture of what Jesus promises his followers when he says, let not your hearts be troubled Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? John 14, 1 and 2. You see, in all our poverty, he promises us untold riches. There's such a tendency in our culture today to view what we do not have as a deficit and what we do have as an asset. And so we spend the better part of our lives trying to fill every perceived deficit with what we think are assets. And the problem with that is we end up filling every possible space in our lives with good things, leaving absolutely no room for the best things. That's why Jesus said to the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 10, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, come follow me. That's why when he sent his disciples out to share the gospel, he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics, Luke 9, 3. In other words, you don't need to rely on what you think are assets because I will take care of you. I will supply all your need and more. In fact, the more we learn to rely on him for everything that we need, the more good he can do in us. Because when we refuse to fill every single ounce of space in our lives with good things, we leave room for him to provide for us the very best things. Joseph's brothers came to him empty. And yet when he sent them out, 
they were full of the very best things of everything they needed and more. You see, sometimes the things that we hold on to so tightly in this life, the things that we think are assets, sometimes those are actually deficits. And at the same time, what we lack can often become our greatest asset when we come before the Lord because when we empty ourselves before Him, we leave room to fill us with His very best before He sends us back out. That's how He uses even our poverty our lack to our ultimate good. So don't despise what you do not have because God has everything that you need and more. Rather see your lack for what it is. It's an opportunity for God to do something great in your life to fill you with his very best. Let's keep reading verses 21 through 24. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. So Joseph gives them wagons full of provisions. It says male and female donkeys. The, the females would not only provide a transportation, but milk for the journey on the return. He gives them new clothes as well. And a fine clothing was a very special gift in biblical times. But in this case, new clothing meant far more. This was a symbolic gesture from Joseph for the reconciliation toward his brothers, okay? The, the word close in verse 22 is the Hebrew word simla, and it corresponds with the word for clothing that was torn by Jacob back in chapter 37 over the perceived loss of Joseph, and by the brothers as well in chapter 44 over the perceived loss or potential loss of Benjamin. And so by giving them new clothing here, Joseph is indicating to them that the time of mourning is finally over. And yet he goes even further by giving Benjamin five sets of clothing, which corresponds to the five servings of food that he was given earlier at Joseph's house, which corresponds to the five years of famine that are still yet to come. Joseph is showing them that everything they've lost will be restored and that every bit of lack will be taken care of. And so and he's now using everything that has divided them from each other, from their father. He's now using all of that to their ultimate good. And then Joseph says something to them that at first glance seems a bit peculiar because he's just lavished on them everything that you could ever possibly want. But then he says to them, do not quarrel on the way which seems like an odd thing to say, right? Why would they quarrel on the way when they've just been given all of this wonderful bounty and promised even more when they return? Well, it's because Joseph is highlighting the one source of division that is yet to be addressed in their family, and that's the differences between the brothers apart from Joseph, right? Back in uh, chapter 37, it was Reuben who stood up for Joseph by keeping the other brothers from killing him which he reminds them in not such a friendly way in chapter 42. It was also Reuben who was distraught when he found out that Joseph had been sold while he was gone. 
And yet later in chapter 42, it was Simeon who had to bear the guilt of the brothers by being locked up in prison for an extended period of time until they returned with Benjamin, which they were in no hurry to do. And yet it was Judah in chapter 44 who took the initiative to stand up for Benjamin while all the others were silent. And so there's a lot of room here between these brothers for pointing fingers. And we see that kind of interaction throughout this story. Likely Joseph senses that tension between them. Remember, they didn't know he understood Hebrew as he listened in to their arguments earlier on. And so Joseph calls the brothers to unity. Again, this is the heart of Christ working in Joseph on behalf of the brothers. In, in John 17, Jesus praying for his disciples and ultimately for us, he prays this prayer. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me. That's all of us. Through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. This was Jesus' vision for his people, that we would be unified, which is why in all our differences, he calls us to unity. In fact, he uses our differences. He works them together for our good. But we don't always see it that way, of course, because we often view our differences as deficits instead of assets. And this shows up in marriage a lot, right? You know, you meet someone and he or she is different in some ways from you. And at first that can be very exciting and quite intriguing. And so we develop this intense love for one another and we celebrate those differences when we're dating. And then we get married and we start living together every day, day after day, and before long, those differences aren't so exciting or intriguing anymore. They're just annoying, right? We begin to lament the fact that our spouse doesn't always see things our way, and it can and it often does create all kinds of division in the marriage. But listen, God made us different. That was his intention all along. We're supposed to be different. And those differences are intended to make our relationships stronger, not weaker. Our differences are actually assets, not deficits. I, I think one of the biggest mistakes that parents can make with their children is creating false standards for their kids to measure every relationship to. Now, hear me. It's our job as parents to teach our kids to be discerning and who they hang out with, and certainly in who they marry, without a doubt. In 1 Corinthians 15.33, Paul says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, he says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So absolutely, it's very important that as followers of Jesus Christ, our closest relationships, those which influence us the most, which obviously includes our marriages, it is very important that those relationships are among other believers and followers of Jesus Christ. But I'm talking about even among believers. There are people who go through life unwilling to marry someone or even have close friendships with other believers who have any kind of immaturities or baggage from their past 
or questionable upbringing or strong differences of opinion. And I'm telling you, if we're not careful, we can go through our entire lives restricting all of our closest relationships to people who think and act and believe and perceive everything exactly the same way that we do, which is a standard that God never created for us. Furthermore, the differences that get under our skin so much, the differences that we push back against in our marriages, the differences that we so often wish were not there, those may well be there by God's design for you. In other words, have you ever stopped to consider that God wants you to be married to someone who's very different from you, even someone who doesn't have it all together all the time? Why? Because that is how we grow and mature and change and learn to love with patience and compassion and grace. Okay? God shapes us through our differences, not our similarities. But if we surround ourselves our entire life with as many people as we can who are as much like us as possible, we never learn to change. We're never challenged to grow. We never mature or have to learn to consider other opinions or perspectives. No, you see, our differences are actually assets because God uses those differences to make us better people. And I'm convinced, by the way, that this is a big part of what Joseph learned by living in and among the Egyptians. Not that he adopted their religion. He certainly didn't. Likewise, Joseph is now imploring his brothers to be unified, even though they don't see eye to eye on everything. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 25 to the end. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived, and Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Okay, back in chapter 42, Jacob, in reference to all of his troubles with his sons and the famine and the ongoing situation in Egypt, he said, All of this has come against me. And yet now it is abundantly clear that all of Jacob's troubles in the end work together for his good. Turns out what he thought were his greatest deficits in his life were actually his greatest assets. Because just as with Joseph, those heartaches and broken relationships and seemingly irreconcilable circumstances in his life turned out to be the very means through which God brought healing and restoration and reconciliation in his life. This is the perspective that we need today. And yet it eludes so many of us. We allow our shame to drive us away from Jesus Christ and those closest to us. We allow our lack to drive us to fill every possible space in our lives with good things instead of holding out for God's best. And we allow our differences to drive a wedge between us and the ones placed in our lives instead of allowing those differences to actually unite us and enrich us, ultimately making us stronger, better people. 
Okay, our, our lives, this is true for all of us. Our lives are full of twists and turns. At times, hardships and heartaches. Sometimes there are long days of waiting and wondering why we're going through what we're going through. Even when we try to do everything right, sometimes we still experience broken relationships and what seem to be completely irreconcilable circumstances. And in those times, when it isn't all going how we'd like it to, how we imagined it would, how we planned it out in our minds, it is easy when that happens to feel shame. It's easy to feel that we're lacking. It's easy to feel like we don't fit in where we are. But the truth is, those are often the very conditions necessary for God to do his greatest work in your life. Turning deficits into assets. And he's always doing that work. Always. He's always working all of it together for our good. Let's pray.